Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Good evening, and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. So today we'll take a look at a Spanish Muslim. And I've been meaning to take another look at Muslim Spain, because there's a lot of really, really interesting characters there. So I think we, we've done one before, which is Ramon Lola. This is the, the second one. He's a little bit before his time. Today we're going to look at Maslama al-Majiti, or, and pardon if I don't pronounce this 100% correct, but Abu al-Qasim al-Qurtubi al-Majiti. And he also had a Latin moniker, which was Metilium. So he, he died in 1008 or 1007. And so he was a Muslim astronomer, chemist, mathematician, economist, which I think is really interesting, actually. I'll talk about that. And also scholar in Islamic Spain. And I would actually go with chemist rather than alchemist here, which I, I, I think um, he, he had some pretty strong viewpoints that are really interesting, way ahead of his time in some ways. And, 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 and Travis, this is important to think, too, in Moorish Spain at the time, uh, brought a lot of what we know today into Europe as that knowledge base from from uh, from the Middle East. That, that was a big, right? yeah. Even even old Greek writings and everything. That that was one of the two big sources. The other one being Constantinople or the fall of of Constantinople. So he did a lot of really cool things. But but uh, some of them were he took part in the translation of Ptolemy's Planisferium. He improved existing translation of the Almagest. He improved astronomical tables of Al-Khwarizmi. Another cool thing that I, or I, th- I think is really interesting is that he helped historians by working out tables to convert Persian dates into the Hijri year, which is, you know, the, the Islamic calendar. Um, he also introduced techniques of surveying and triangulation, which is, you know, pretty cool and involves geometry. And so this this was during the reign of Al-Hakam II. According to Said ibn Ahmad Andalusi, he was the best mathematician and astronomer of his time, in at least in Al-Andalus. Another contemporary of his, his was uh, Ibn al-Safar, which, um, you know, regarding like surveying methods and, and that kind of thing, is really, really uh, famous. He wrote a book on the taxation and economy of, An- of Al-Andalus, which I think is one of his interesting things. He also, he also edited and made changes to parts of the, the Encyclopedia of Brethren of Sin- Sincerity when the encyclopedia arrived in Al- Andalus. Another really interesting thing, again, I, I keep saying that, but, but I, I think a lot of the things he did is really fascinating. Um, he predicted a futuristic process of kind of scientific interchange, like, um, you know, he kind of envisioned a network of scientific communication and which we now have, so that's, that's kind of cool. And um, he built a school of astronomy, mathematics, and even his take on mathematics is, is really interesting, which we'll get to. I know I keep saying that, but he's... We're going to get there. There's a lot of really interesting yeah. stuff about this guy. This, his school really marked the beginning of kind of organized scientific research in Al-Andalus. One of those students was Al-Safar that we mentioned before, but also Abu Al-Salt and, and Al-Tartushi, all people that you could look up and are very interesting in their own rights. A really 
Okay, I'm going to say one more time. Another really interesting thing he did, which, because um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Lavoisier and, and uh, the, the whole chemical kind of revolution that happened that changed alchemy to chemistry, and one of those was the conservation of mass, which... Uh, Lavoisier was one of the main players of that some 700 years later, 800 years later almost. And But he actually had kind of a theory. There's one of his books that he wrote was the Rutbat al-Hakim, which among other things described formula and procedures of the for the purification of precious, precious metals. In that book, he attempts to show that there is some sort of principle of mass conservation. Okay, and you know, Again, eight centuries later, Lavoisier would get credit for this. So, uh, you know, I don't know if he, he clearly wasn't very formal as as the ones in the in the 18th, 19th century. The exact details of of his theory or why he thought that are lost, unfortunately, now. But and um, his experimentation on mercury proved that he was at least cognizant of this almost non-existent change in the weight of mass after the reaction. So, you know, that's all conservation of mass is, that you have two in inputs and, or whatever, however many inputs and however many outputs, but they weigh the same. And, and then later we would even say it on, on an atomic level, you know, so that he was aware that you're not creating more when you, through a chemical reaction or you're not losing anything. Somehow, even though you, you might have different compositions, you have the same mass. So you have the same quantity of inputs and outputs. So that's, that's, like, I can't overemphasize that. That is really huge. And, you know, again, 800 years before it was officially, uh, you know, documented and, and kind of spread. Well, Travis, so, since we opened up the show tonight, you really put emphasis on the idea that he was a chemist. And this really, really puts a, a, this a spotlight is, on yeah, that. Yeah, this is one of those things where I think this really separates him from the, the hoi polloi of, like, you know, your average alchemists and, and people that didn't really understand those kind of principles. So he clearly understood that, no, I'm taking something and I, I, I have a result and I'm not magically creating something in between or losing something like, no, it's the same, it's the same ingredients, they just look different now. So that's, that's really a big difference. And unfortunately, we lost some of this work, of course, and when you lose some track in a historical figure, sometimes things get a little murky, especially in, in this show that we talk about with, with alchemy. Uh, we have a lot of pseudo biographies that we talk about, and this, this, this is not far from that. Pseudo Almagriti uh, is one of these, uh, perfect, as a perfect example of this. Uh, from the date of his death, inconsistencies result in the dating of two of these influential works in early chemistry that are attributed to him, as either they were either published long after his death or they were some work of somebody else, like another pseudo, uh, claiming some of his glory. This is something that's happened time and time again. We're talking about alch alchemists. Uh, the latter is the current general belief. Yeah, it seems like most things I've come across um, kind of agree that it's just somebody else signing the work in his name. And, you know, we've obviously dealt with this a half dozen times, like Pseudo-Democritus and Pseudo-Thomas Aquinas. You know, there's, there's all t kinds of times we've dealt with this, but not everybody agrees. I've also uh, read that, for instance, the Rubat al-Hakim was published in... in 1009, which is only like one or two years after his death. So it could have been that his student published it, but still used his name. You know, maybe, who knows how much editing went on, but, but um, yeah, it's, you know, I, I wouldn't say that's the only theory, that it was somebody else claiming to be him. It could have been that 
he had a manuscript laying around and so it was published after his death, but it was written by him. But some other works attributed to him were written much after his death. So, okay, you know, there might be a, might be a little bit of both depending on what we're, we're talking about. The, there's the other famous book that he's known for is the, the Gayat al-Hakim. Both the Rubat al-Hakim and Gayat al-Hakim were both translated into Latin. The Gayat al-Hakim was kind of changed in 1252 on the orders of King Alfonso X of Castile, kind of adding some Christian dogma to it or editing it in, in some way that was kind of, you know, fit the palates of the, of the uh, Catholic conquerors then later. But there must have been something that the, the church had seen as uh, very important in these writings, that they would oh, spend yeah, the time sure. to translate into Latin. Yep, and, the, and you know, it is also noteworthy that this happened well before the reconquest of Spain, like 200 years before, so it is, or 250 years. So yeah, it was actually deemed important enough to, to you know, seek this out and translate it, not just later when they conquered Cordoba or whatever. So it's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, another thing he's known for was his experiment on mercury oxide or mercuric oxide. Which again, you know, this comes back to the conservation of mass when we mentioned that it was it was these experimentations that were really groundbreaking in the assumptions that it doesn't lose or gain mass. There's there's a quote I found from him. So the quote is, "I took natural quivering mercury, free from impurity, and placed it in a glass vessel shaped like an egg. This I put inside another vessel like a cooking pot, and set the whole apparatus over an extremely gentle fire." This should sound familiar to us by now, by the way. Um, the other outer pot was then in such a degree of heat that I could bear my hand upon it. I heated the apparatus day and night for 40 days, after which I opened it. I found the mercury, the original weight of which was a quarter of a pound, had been completely converted into red powder, soft to the touch, the weight remaining as it was originally. So really, kind of, so it, it completely oxidized but it's still the same weight as it was originally. Conservation of mass. Yep. And I found another quote that said it was four days, not 40. From alchemical recipes, clearly 40 is more along the lines of the time periods we're talking about. But I found another one that's four, so I don't know which one's actually correct. But not, not to make him sound like he's super groundbreaking, this is kind of similar to, to other Islamic thinkers of the time that, for instance, Jabir's theory had similar references to the amounts of substances. So it's just interesting to note that, that there were some others along this line. So whether in this book or another book, uh, Maslama was one of those who di really differentiated in between chemistry and alchemy and really underlined genuineness as a science stressing the magnanimity of scientific persuasion and being distinct from, from magic and sorcery. So we're talking about He's really got his feet placed here in mathematics and chemistry, and not so much in the sorcery and the occult of magic. Furthermore, he, has an, he emphasized the requirement of the student of chemistry to have a good knowledge of mathematics, to have that foundation, that key foundation, uh, so that his students could adopt a scientific approach based on the experimentation and observation. His statements in the field of chemistry is his most famous assertion that one is, is claimed to be a chemist should fully be certain that the criteria including reading Euclid's mathematical work, Ptolemy's astronomy, and Aristotle's philosophy, and then mix that all together, and, th and then read J Jabir Ibn Hayyan, uh, known as Geber. Right. We talked about Geber We did before, a show on right? him, yeah. Was there also pseudo-Geber by the time? Yep, yep, there you there go. Was, so we're bringing there that back go. into the yep. deal. And the Imam Razi. Uh, before training his hands uh, on experimentation and his mind on analysis. So 
there was a process yeah. here that he we, was we very did a, focused we did a show, upon. We did a show on Al Razi too. So, um, in fact, I, is that I interviewed Peter Adam, Adamson? Adamson, on, uh, yeah. Not that I want to mention him again on our show, but you know, the Gayat, the, his other work is more concentrated with advanced esotericism, namely mostly astrology and talismanic magic. So, and even prophecy, okay? So, so he kind of considered this advanced level work, occasionally referring to the Rubat as the foundation text. So, Rubat being, okay, what you got to learn first, and then when you're ready to move on, the Gayat. Again, could have been somebody else authoring this. So, you know, it's kind of hard to see that this really rational scientific mind would then write about this esoteric stuff. But you could also see it as, okay, that he just wanted to differentiate the two right and then write on both th things so yeah either way you want to look at it I couldn't really tell you what actually happened but basically the Gayat is the treatise of this kind of ancient as well as medieval scientific theory but also this Islamic hermetic literature of kind of you know philosophical importance and then back to this pure scientific data ranging from from alchemy astronomy botany and others so th there's there's a mix in in this uh, Gayat. So maybe you, you have to read the really, you know, have a strong scientific foundation to understand this other things. Hard to say. But in the West, the book became known as Picatrix, which again, we have this Latin translation in the 13th century. And that was also based on an earlier Spanish translation. And both appear to to have been produced at the same time in, you know, in court Alfonso X, like we mentioned. This is the most famous of the two books. And an Arabic version was found as late as 1920 by Wilhelm Prince. So there you go. Um, so one, one person described this book as kind of a simplification of talismanic pr procedures that were common among alchemists in the medieval age, especially in the pursuit of developing gold from other metals. So really these kind of alchemical talisman um, things that, that he kind of maybe cod you know, codified them and, and you know, wrote them down in a, in a kind of formalized way. Um, that's at least one person's take on this, but... Reports of his work as an astrologer in the royal court of Cordova lacked validity. So, well, may not have been a lot of historical truth to it. Moreover, it was uh, the defective inference that resulted in the forecast of the fall of the caliphate. And as a result, his prophecy in the field of astrology, so this all starts kind of coming, coming down around him a little bit here. It was the erroneous perception of commoners in the Muslim world during those periods that associated astronomy with astrology and the magic and the sorcery that came with it. We've talked Mixed about up. this before that, um, yeah, that we talked about this before that in the, in the Muslim world, this all kind of went together in, in, until, was it Al-Razi? Um, who, who's really tried to differentiate between one kind of philosophy and another kind of philosophy, namely there's a scientific mathematical basis to one and, you know, astrology and magic and sorcery go in the other. So um, not that they're necessarily false, but that there's a difference between the two. This is the divergent so, in the road right yeah. here. Exactly. Well, the history books too written during these times uh, and subsequently were, were not devoid of these statements condemning Al-Majiti and associating his work with necromancy. Therefore, the, this, so this makes all the more probable for commoners and historians to associate him with working as an astrologer in the courts of the, cal of the caliphate. Yeah, so he kind of, yeah, it's almost like he got this kind of, you know, at, long after his death, he got this reputation of being kind of a mythical, or I should say mystical figure. Yeah, probably really, he probably didn't want that. Yeah, probably not. You know? So, yeah. yeah. In retrospect, like, I wouldn't necessarily see him as a mystic at all. I would, yeah, like we kind of said, I would you know, kind of take into account the society that he lived in. So um, that it was just common 
practice to see these philosophies mixed per se, but we clearly see some very scientific experiments going on and, and, and acute and, you know, precise descriptions and that kind of thing. There's, there's another kind of similarly false report of, of uh, his authorship of the Epistles of the Brethren of Purity, which, you know, has been criticized. Yeah, and, and there was even just false reports of him writing things that he didn't write. And this could come back to the um, pseudo al-Majriti, but, but also even in his lifetime that some of his contemporaries might have written um, some other more mystical works that happened in his lifetime but wasn't actually written by him. So the you know majority of, of people in his, type, in, in his lifetime kind of spoke in his favor and um, he, he toured Mesopotamia and that actually you know led to the emergence of his works kind of making its way from that way uh, into Europe. So and it, yeah, there, there's there's other theories that say one of his students, Al Kirmani, was the per, was the person that actually brought the copy during his visit in Mesopotamia. So it's you know kind of hard to dissect what what really happened and how they made its way um, to the Middle East from Spain. But yeah, it's possible that he re he wrote some commentaries on some of these other books, um, not necessarily authored them himself. You know, he like we said before, he edited a lot of things. He wrote he wrote a lot of things. So it's it's possible that he had some mystical writings that he just commented on or or edited and then got attributed to him later. I think my my favorite part of the podcast that we have some someone who talked about the conver conservation of mass some seven eight hundred years early, so. Uh, that's that's what I'm taking out of this. Definitely a trailblazer. So there you have it. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks. Have a good day. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 